You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. We've reached the end of the road of climate safety unless we embark on this decisive transformation. In the climate solution, speed is everything. For December 27th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. Well, another year is drawing to a close, and I wanted to wrap it up on an upbeat note. So I'm very pleased indeed to bring you a very special guest for today's conversation, none other than climate researcher and science communicator, Dr. Michael Mann. Dr. Mann has been studying and publishing on climate science for over 20 years now, and has been a lead author on and contributor to the IPCC's reports. So he has extensive experience in tracking climate science, the debates around it, and the progression of it over the years. He's probably best known for the so-called hockey stick graph that he and his colleagues created, which showed how global temperatures shot up when humans started burning fossil fuels, and which was vividly depicted in Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. He is rightly regarded as one of the world's top experts on climate, and it's an enormous privilege to have him join us on the show. In today's conversation, we're going to discuss his new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from the Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis, in which he answers the question, are we doomed? We'll also explore a few other questions that have been swirling around in the climate science community lately, including... If we get to the same CO2 concentrations today that existed in the geological past when the planet was free of ice, does that mean all the ice will melt again? Is there evidence of feedback loops that will lead to tipping points in the climate system? Will the planet keep warming after carbon emissions go to zero? Is the fact that the world exceeded 1.5 degrees C of warming for some months of this year proof that the Paris target has been breached and we're headed for climate doom? Are climate science models underestimating future warming? And is there a chance that the world can limit warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees C? Then in the news segment, we'll look at some recent developments in the small modular nuclear reactor sector. We'll see how the competition with China for rare earth metals is heating up. We'll check the recent prices for lithium. We'll salute the startup of a new geothermal plant. And we'll note how the EU is investing in modernizing its power grids. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. NB Power is the primary electric utility in the Canadian province of New Brunswick, a vertically integrated crown corporation wholly owned by the government of New Brunswick. SolarEdge is a maker of solar inverters based in Israel. And Paradoxy Particles is a developer of carbon capture technology. We're so pleased to have all of them on board. Also, if you're a subscriber and haven't logged into our website yet, you're missing out on the full benefit of your subscription. Remember, you must log into our website to see our extensive show notes, which are not available from your podcast player apps. Our website is also where you can find our interactive interview transcripts. And if you haven't tried our search tools on our website, you should. You can find shows by guest or topic or by keyword in the transcript, sort episodes by geek rating or popularity or whether they're trending, see just the shows in our mini-series, including our complete free shows, and more. And don't forget, if you're an annual subscriber, there are two ways you can share the Energy Transition Show with a friend or colleague. First, you have three free share links per year that you can give to someone else, which will give the recipient one free month of access to the two most recent full episodes of the show. 
And second, there's a simple form on our website that you can use to give a year's subscription to a friend. To access these features, just log into our website, click your name in the upper right-hand corner, and go to the Manage Subscription page, where you'll find the Gift Accounts button. And now, our conversation with Dr. Michael Mann, recorded November 17th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Michael, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks. It's great to be with you. In your new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis, you explore the nuances and uncertainty in climate science along the way to answering a key question, are we doomed? And I'm very pleased that you've written this book because it's a question we get a lot here on the Energy Transition Show, and I think we're well aligned with your perspective. So let's just start there. Are we doomed? Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, it's a question that I have addressed in other work. My last book, which was The New Climate War, was really about the challenges that we face today as we get past denial. It's just no longer credible for polluters to deny climate change is happening, but they've turned to other tactics in their effort to keep us addicted to fossil fuels, to maintain business as usual. And one of those tactics is indeed fanning the flames of doomism because they recognize that if they can convince us it's too late to do anything about the problem, it potentially leads us down the same path of inaction as outright denial. And so that's a theme that I've explored before. But here, I explore it in a different way. In our fragile moment, it's really about the lessons we can learn from Earth's past. And one of the things you sometimes hear from sort of climate doomers, those who insist that it is too late, that we've triggered runaway warming, methane from the Arctic, there's nothing we can do to stop it. It's not true. <laughs> the uh, observations don't show any evidence of that. But the premise is often that this happened in the past in natural warming events like what we call the PETM. It was a, a natural warming event about 56 million years ago that was due to a rapid input of carbon dioxide from explosive volcanism into the atmosphere. And it led to fairly rapid warming on a geological time frame over 10,000 to 20,000 years. The doomers will claim that it was actually an example of a runaway warming event, and it was triggered by a massive release of methane, which they argue is happening today. I review the evidence, the actual scientific evidence for what happened, and that's not what happened. The estimates are that a natural release of methane, that feedback, you know, you warm the oceans, you warm the permafrost, and that causes the release of methane, and that adds to the warming. We call it a positive feedback, but it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. The methane feedback added at most 10% to the warming. So overwhelmingly, the warming was due to a release of carbon dioxide, and that's what we're doing today. We're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere through fossil fuel burning. That's what's causing the warming. And so if you actually look at what happened in the past, it reinforces our notion, our understanding of what's happening today. And it also reinforces the agency that we have because we can stop that release of carbon dioxide today by getting off fossil fuels. That is a terrific way to begin this conversation because I do have a few follow-ups related to that question. But let's explore some of the evidence that leads you to your perspective. So one question that seems to generate a lot of confusion is how much the paleoclimate record can tell us about what a much warmer world could look like. One potential outcome of that is often discussed is the possibility that the Greenland ice sheet could melt, along with portions of the ice sheets in Antarctica, leading to massive sea level rise. 
We know that those areas were not covered in ice when the Earth was much warmer in the geological past, and that the transition to a nearly ice-free planet happened when atmospheric concentrations of CO2 were around 450 parts per million. Since we're already at 417 ppm today, and NASA projects that we'll get to 450 ppm by 2040, that has led some observers to speculate that we're on track to have the ice sheets melt again. So how deterministic can forecasts based on the paleoclimatic record be? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And it's worth pointing out that what levels CO2 will reach in the atmosphere is still determined by us. We can avoid crossing that 440 or 450 ppm mark. We're at about 418 or so right now. We can avoid crossing those sort of dangerous thresholds if we reduce carbon emissions dramatically. So again, it gets back to that issue of agency. But it is very interesting to look at, for example, the period known as the mid-Pliocene. If you go far enough back in time, preceding sort of the glaciation of the planet, the ice ages, the Pleistocene period, you go back a little further, say three million years ago, and gradually as you're going back in time, carbon dioxide concentrations are getting higher because we're gradually working our way, of course, towards past periods like the Cretaceous, you know, 100 million years ago, CO2 came down substantially thereafter. And so as you go back in time, you're sort of, you're going up in CO2. Whereas today, of course, CO2 is going up as we go forward in time because of human activity. So if you go far enough back, about 3 million years or so during the mid-Pliocene, what you say is absolutely true. The evidence says that there was no Greenland ice sheet. There probably wasn't a West Antarctic ice sheet. And the ice contained in those two reservoirs alone is enough to raise sea level, not feet, but meters, maybe even 10 meters or more, 30 feet or more of sea level rise. Obviously, that would be disastrous today. That would inundate coastlines, major cities around the world. So the question is, well, if that happened, the mid-Pliocene, at a time when CO2 was similar to what it is today, so as you're going back in time, it's gradually going up, and by the time you get 3 million years, it's it's up to about 415, 420. That's about where we are today. And so you mm -hmm. look at that and you say, gee, when CO2 was last at that level, there was probably no West Antarctic ice sheet. Sea level was substantially higher. Does that mean we are committed to that? And I get into the science. It gets a little wonky. It gets a little technical at one point in that discussion because there is this phenomenon that I talk about a fair amount in the book. It's called hysteresis. What does it mean? It means that things don't behave the same way going forward and going backward. There is path dependence. It depends on where you started. And so it turns out that when you start out with a warm climate like we have today and you go back in time, the point at which you create an ice sheet is not the same as if you're going, say, forward in time. That is to say, if we look at the mid-Pliocene, CO2 levels were coming down over time. The climate was cooling. Today, CO2 levels are going up. The climate is warming. And what that means is that it isn't necessarily true that when we reach the same level of CO2 as the mid-Pliocene, that the Greenland ice sheet is doomed and the West Antarctic ice sheet are doomed. It basically has to do with the fact that when you have ice, it's sort of resilient. It's sort of 
hard to melt ice when you have it, in part because it cools the climate, it reflects sunlight, it has, it has its own impact on the climate, and it resists efforts to melt it to some extent. And so when you have ice around, it's going to take a higher CO2 level to melt it than the CO2 level that was required to form it as ah. CO2 levels came down over time. What does it mean in the end? It means that that hysteresis effect maybe buys us a half a degree or so. Maybe okay. it buys us 10 or 20 parts per million of CO2. It's not a panacea, but what it means is we're probably not yet committed to losing the Greenland ice sheet at current levels of warmth. If we go much beyond where we are, the models tell us, then it's in play. And so it reinforces, again, the the title of the book, Our Fragile Moment. We are at this fragile place right now where we're close to some of these very dangerous thresholds. We're probably not there yet, but we're getting close. Really interesting. Okay. So related to the questions around polar ice melting are questions about warming leading to methane releases from the permafrost and possibly from subsea methane hydrates. In episode 195, we explored the potential for permafrost emissions in a warming climate with Gustav Hugelius, who told us that those emissions were likely to be slow and gradual and are unlikely to result in a short-term, rapid, so-called methane bomb that will render our decarbonization efforts useless. Similarly, there was a recent paper on the potential collapse of the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, by Peter and Suzanne Ditlifson, which generated a lot of hyperbolic headlines about tipping points for a few days, until other scientists had a chance to respond to it and show that the headlines and the summary claims about the paper were rather overstated. I've seen another recent model presented by Hank Dykstra that simulates an AMOC collapse, which some observers like Professor Stefan Romsdorf said showed that the tipping point has been confirmed. But it was only a modeled result in a scenario with an unlikely degree of warming, as far as I could tell, but I'm not an expert. So some casual observers who seem to be very enamored with notions of tipping points and collapse seized on that as further confirmation of their views. And those are just two examples of really a whole set of possible so-called tipping points and feedback loops that have been discussed in the literature recently, which some people think spell inevitable climate doom no matter what we do. So what's your perspective on these questions? Do you think there is conclusive evidence that the world is now crossing such thresholds or definitely will? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And it's so difficult to have nuanced conversations about these things. (laughs) Just like tipping points, you're in one state or the other. It's very binary. So too is our discussion. The public discourse over these things is often very binary, where you have Mm. two different camps, pretty extreme in their views. And, And often the truth is sort of somewhere in between. As my good friend and mentor, the great Stephen Schneider, who's sadly no longer with us, used to say, the truth is bad enough. And that's sort of a mantra for this book. It's sort of a mantra for what we learned from the paleoclimate record. And the truth is, for example, let's take those two tipping points, methane. And we got into that a little bit earlier with the PETM and, and the point being that methane doesn't seem to have been a major driver behind that natural warming event. It was really the CO2, right. <laughs> the same greenhouse gas we're generating from fossil fuel burning back then from volcanic venting. 
So there's no evidence when we look at the PTM for sort of a runaway methane-driven warming. And as your previous guest noted, when we look at the measurements of methane in the atmosphere, they are going up. We think it's mostly because of human emissions, mostly because of natural gas extraction, fracking, fugitive methane emissions. So yeah, there's an increase in methane. And methane is a potent sort of short-term warmer. It's not there for the long-term like carbon dioxide is. It's going up, but the isotopic evidence, we can actually look for a fingerprint in the carbon isotopes of the methane that's building up and figure out where it's coming from. And it looks like it's coming from fossil fuel extraction and maybe to some extent livestock and agriculture, but not from some natural methane feedback from the permafrost. Mm. So the evidence is that there doesn't appear to be any sort of massive methane feedback that would be in play for the sorts of warming scenarios we're talking about. I mean, if we warm the planet up 10 degrees, then all bets are off <laughs> at that point. But I mean, yeah, at that point, we'd have other problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we don't have a whole lot of reliable evidence of what would happen when we warm that rapidly and we warm that much. But for the sort of warming we're talking about, where even in the absence of any additional policy progress, and it would be tragic if there were none, but even just with current policies today, we're looking probably no more than three and a half degrees Celsius, probably three degrees warming Celsius, five Fahrenheit plus warming of the planet. So nothing that would trigger like hothouse feedbacks, methane. That doesn't look like that's something we really have to worry about. Now, the collapse of the AMOC, so not all tipping points are the same, and there's not one tipping point. There's this idea that oh, if we warm the climate beyond 1.5 Celsius, 3 Fahrenheit, that triggers the tipping point where everything goes to hell in a handbasket, and that's not the way it works. There may be some tipping points out there, but they're likely going to be triggered at different levels of warming. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
The prospects for small modular reactors, or SMRs, grew dimmer in the fourth quarter of 2023 as a series of events highlighted the struggles of the nascent nuclear technology to get to commercial reality. In late October, a partnership between X-Energy Reactor Company, or X-Energy, and RS Acquisition Corporation, or AAC, fell apart as the economics of the enterprise began to look too challenging to continue. AAC is a special purpose acquisition company, otherwise known as a SPAC, created to help take X-Energy public. X-Energy's SMR is known as a pebble bed high temperature gas reactor, which is an unproven design. As of this writing, Dow still plans to build another X-Energy unit at its UCC Seadrift operation in Texas. However, X-Energy reportedly laid off around 100 employees in November, and it is still far from certain that once the price of the X-Energy unit is settled, that Dow will decide to proceed. On November 8th, a partnership between SMR developer NewScale Power and Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, or UAMPS, a utility, that was expected to build the first commercial SMR in the U.S. also fell apart. NewScale had raised its target price for power from the SMR from $58 to $80 per megawatt hour at the start of the year, citing rising costs. But UAMPs and other potential buyers of the project's output just couldn't bear the risk. Since UAMPs was NewScale's only genuine customer as yet, the collapse of the partnership also ended the company's plan to build its first six reactors, for which more than two dozen utilities had signed up to buy electricity. And because NewScale's design was considered to have the best prospects for commercialization, being the first and only SMR developer to have its reactor design approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the plan's unraveling did not bode well for other SMR developers working on less conventional designs. Like AAC, NewScale has now canceled its plan to go public through a SPAC and is seeking to raise additional private equity. But anyone who listened to our interview with legendary investor Jeremy Grantham in episode 144 will be well aware of the perils of the SPAC strategy. Meanwhile, SMR developer TerraPower, which is privately owned with Bill Gates as chairman and lead investor, is proceeding with development of its first-of-a-kind natrium reactor. TerraPower intends to offer Rocky Mountain Power, a division of Pacificorp, a fixed-price turnkey contract under which TerraPower will be the licensee and owner of a project in Kemmerer, Wyoming, through the construction period, and will only turn it over to Rocky Mountain Power at a price agreed prior to construction once the plant is operational. Both the TerraPower and X-Energy projects are backed by Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program cost-share awards from the U.S. Department of Energy. While there are still a few potential business cases that SMR developers could go after, there are going to be niche applications at this point because SMRs are expensive and a poor fit to the emerging grid, which is based around variable, low-cost renewables and flexible demand. And all of the SMR vendors must still navigate key regulatory and fuel supply challenges and agree on commercial contracts with their respective first-of-a-kind customers. For a deeper look at nuclear power and the dim prospects for SMRs, listen to episode 209. Item 2. In the race to make electric vehicles, possession of deposits of rare earth metals has loomed large as a form of potential geopolitical leverage. China embarked on a shrewd strategy to corner the global supply of these minerals early on, and now enjoys a dominant position. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. 
Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.